to Little Detours with Regina Brett, where we help you create a life you love out of the life you have. Thanks for joining me. I'm your host, Regina Brett. Rob Snow can sum up the heart of his life in two sentences. I have a son with Down syndrome and a love of comedy. The rest of my life has been a merger of those two things. Rob grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, and always had a passion for comedy. He obsessively watched it on television in all its forms, and of course was the class clown. He later studied improv at the famed Second City Theater. Then he started performing stand-up on stages all over the country. But in 2000, he hung up his comedy dreams to pursue the, quote, normal life, end quote. Wife, child, pick a fence, you know, stability. Everything was going according to plan until 2009. He and his wife, Ellen, had a son and decided to have another child. And that's when everything changed. Henry was born with Down syndrome. After their hearts fell, they rose to embrace and celebrate their new son. But when others realized Henry had Down syndrome, they said words Rob would come to dread. I'm sorry. The look of sadness and sympathy on their faces made him want to scream. Instead, he wrote a book called What I Should Have Said. When people say things like, when life gives you lemons, make lemonade, Rob wants to say, did you just call my son a lemon? His son, Henry, inspired Rob to create three one-man shows and the charity Stand Up for Downs. It also inspired the Improvineers, the one and only all-down syndrome improv group of its kind. Rob, thanks for joining us today. Wow, thank you for having me. Well, you've been really busy. I wrote about you long ago when your book first came out, and uh, you've done quite a bit in that time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I, it seems like it. It does well when you when you put it like that. I guess it, it does. I don't feel like that, but I'll take your word for it. I want to start with kind of paint a picture of your life before Henry Force. Kind of what was it like? You had quit comedy. I think you were going back to it. You're going to have the second child. What was it like before he arrived? Yeah, we we had been in downtown Chicago. My wife and I, we were married in 2000. And then that's when I switched from comedy to, uh, or just before that, I kind of switched from, you know, pursuing this dream of comedy. I was doing, you know, every stand-up stage I could and every improv theater that would take me and things like that. And then, you know, in 2000, I just kind of said, I'm ready for the normal life, you know, which really means I'm ready for some money, I guess, right? (laughs) So we get married and uh, had our kid, had our first kid, had a real kid, got a real house, all of that stuff. And and my wife was working pretty hard. She was a, a vice president at an insurance company. Around 2008, just had enough. She said, I'm done. Uh, you know, our, our son was four. We were taking him to daycare every morning and picking him up and all of that. And I said, well, if it's just on me now, then we're going to, I, we have to move from downtown Chicago. I can't afford this uh, just on my salary. So we thought Cleveland. I grew up in Canton, Ohio, and uh, you know I knew Cleveland had half-off housing from Chicago, so <laughs> I was like, let's give it a shot, get back to close to my family. And yeah, we moved to a little town called Medina, just outside of Cleveland, and um, just loved it. But I started getting back into comedy for some reason. I hadn't performed in over eight years, and um, I just had a couple jokes I wanted to tell, and got me back on stage, and that's what we were doing. And then literally nine months after we moved to Medina, um, we had a big surprise in Henry. Uh, so, of course, Henry was born. And 
So when, yeah. when your wife, Ellen, was pregnant, um, you had said there were some soft markers on the ultrasound that might indicate Down syndrome, but would, did you have any way to prepare for this, I guess? No, it, and they were they were very soft, actually. They were so soft that by the next ultrasound, they weren't even there. But it was always interesting to me that it was brought to our attention. You know, th- there was a white spot on his heart, possibly indicative of something related to Down syndrome. He had short femurs, you know, and then the second ultrasound, the white spot was gone. The, you know, the doctor said, you know, you guys aren't real tall people. So, um, you know, he wasn't worried about the short femurs. And it's, but it was so it was interesting that that was even brought to our attention. We had the talk, you know, we said, well, what if and all of that. And so it wasn't until he was born, you know, and this was probably two or three months after that, that ultrasound when we had that news that, you know, when he came out, I remembered this and I said, you know, as everybody's tending to Ellen and, and the baby, I said, you know, he had a couple soft markers that he might have Down syndrome. Would we know that right now? I just assumed they came out with a sign on them or something, <laughs> but um, that's not the case. And they said they looked at him and they all like kind of stopped and started studying him for a while. And they came back and they said, you know, we're about 90% sure that he does not have Down syndrome. We'll take some blood work, but to be sure. But he said, I think you're in the clear, which, you know, now I don't love that terminology from, from doctors, but you know, at the time there was some relief, but I think my wife and I kind of had this gut feeling that maybe that wasn't the case. You know, it was just very much a gut feeling. And then three or four hours later, our pediatrician walked into the hospital room. We'd never met her in our lives. Like I said, we'd only been there for nine months to the day. You could do the math on that one, Regina. Uh, <laughs> so uh, <laughs> so we we just picked her randomly and literally had never met her. And she walks in and um she looks Henry over and then she says, well, I'm about 80% sure your son has Down syndrome. And then as our hearts like, you know, descend into the pits of our stomach with what we thought at the time was the worst news we had ever heard, uh, turned out to be the best news. But, you know, as our hearts descend where she, she says, and that is awesome. And then she turns around her laptop and she shows us pictures of her daughter who has Down syndrome. How great is that, right? And this is a pediatrician <laughs> that just was randomly picked. I mean, you didn't have a completely great random. That is she hadn't even seen our older son by that time. So, yeah, completely random. So you went from <laughs> that, like you said, your heart fell to this woman turning around and showing you how she celebrates her daughter. And how old was her daughter? Yeah, do you think? I think her daughter's five years older than Henry, so she was about four or five at the time. So you instantly had a support system, which is pretty amazing. Amazing and instant. I always talk about this in the show that I do, but it's, it's, you know, when you have these mountains that just, you know, fall in front of you, that the biggest challenges of your life. And it's so important, you know, what I have these seven steps and one of those steps is find the positive. And, and I don't say stay positive or be positive because that's challenging to do. You have to go out and find it, you know, and this was like that first thing, you know, it didn't, we weren't like all of a sudden, oh, it's going to be great. But it just started, that's why I call it Minimize the Mountain, the show, because it just started to minimize it for us. And when you can kind of acknowledge those minimizations, you know, and a lot of people don't, they'll have some major challenge in life and and, and something will be helped along the way, but they still consider that mountain the same size. And I'm like, it's not the same size. It's It's become smaller. We have to acknowledge that. And that's what happened when I saw those pictures playing soccer and there was one when she was on the cheer team and things like that. So 
so uh, Rob, I wonder, okay, so you have this moment where your heart drops and she shows you her beautiful daughter, but I'm guessing it's kind of like anything. There's a process you go through. And I wonder, did you go through any kind of that shock, denial, bargaining, kind of the, almost like a grief of what you thought you were going to have as a parent? Cause you had yeah. a son, Charlie who, you know, no, no issues with. And I wonder, can you tell us a little bit of that process of, of acceptance or I, I don't know what word to use. Yeah. Acceptance is the word. I mean, it, and you know what? All parents get there, you know, or all good parents, I should say, get there. They get to accepting their child, you know, for whatever reasons, you know. And I always say, like, like, like a good parent, you know, that has committed to their child, um, especially in times of like, you know, if they have special needs or, or disability or things like that. You know, that parent is as proud when a, a child who may almost never be able to have use of their hands squeezes their finger harder one day as the parent who whose son makes the game winning catch in, in the state championship game. You know, like it's it's the same level. It's just we have different schedules and things like that, of course. You know, I look at some of our friends who are, you know, hockey parents and they're going all around the world with their schedules and and I'm going, oh my God, that would be, that would be so challenging. And they're looking at us and, you know, Henry goes to a therapy here and there and things, but it's just, it's all very relative. And, you know, you really can't put yourself too far into anybody else's life thinking you understand somebody else's life that well. I also wonder about kind of the community of support. My aunt had a son with Down syndrome in the seventies. And, and back then it was almost like you didn't talk yeah. about it. It was everybody was almost like afraid of what do you right. do? It was whispered. And, and my cousin Brett was just like the glue of the family. He was, he became that great gift. I mean, uh, yeah. at every family reunion, it was like, okay, what's Brett going to do here? And, and he was just the perfect joy, but, but it wasn't celebrated by the world around him. And I wonder that idea of that community of support, in some ways it's shrunk because of all the prenatal testing and many people who decide not to have a complete pregnancy with a child with Down. So I wonder, can you tell us what that community is like of people who have a child with Down syndrome? It's really amazing. I mean, they we kind of say this, it's the best time ever to have a child with, with a disability period, you know, because of that community. First of all, there's medical advances, which are great, that um, your cousin, I believe you said, did not have, or your aunt or uncle, mm-hmm. you know, did not have that. And I always admire those parents back then, 30, 40, 50 years ago, who did opt to have because they it, it wasn't easy for them to do. And I don't say that lightly. Like, of course, that's not easy to decide you're going to have this child. But they were also like people were medical people were thrusting things in their face, like pamphlets of institutions and right. adoption and, of course, abortion, you know, if, if they found out prenatally. So, you know, people were telling them not to have them or not to raise them. That's not really done anymore. It, you know, there's stories, but it's certainly not to the extent that it was and any good OBGYN is certainly understands and, and, you know, knows um, the gift that a child with Down syndrome can be, or really any, any disability can be in the way that they can be raised now in such amazing environments with such huge support groups. I mean, you know, all these groups that were started by parents around kitchen tables, you know, 20, 30 years ago that are now, lobbying in Congress. You know, I've been in Congress uh, in Capitol, the Capitol five times now to kind of lobby, which has been amazing. But that's that's where we're at right now. So, well, and, you know, in the whole Special Olympics movement, when it was created uh, uh, by one of the Kennedys, you know, uh, yes, yeah. 
I think that it really helped people see this, the, the joy and the celebration of a child. And there's also the upside of Downs group. Tell us a bit about Henry. What is he like, you know, not just as your child, but the difference that a child with Downs brings into the world? Yeah, I mean, so much. And I, I can't, it's, it's so hard to even encapsulate that. I, you know, I do this thing and I feel guilty sometimes where I'll have, you know, we'll be with friends of ours and they just have two typical children or like we have two boys and they have two boys and they're doing all their typical, you know, sports and all that, you know, we'll leave sometimes and I'll actually go, Ah, oh, that just seems so boring to me. Like, I mean, I know it shouldn't, I know I shouldn't say that, but I mean, in a way it, for me, I always think, oh my gosh, you know, what our lives would have been like. The fact that we got, we're privy. I always say, Regina, like we're privy. We get to know something that most, that stays very unknown to most of this world. And we get to be privy to this. And I look at it like that. You know, we get this opportunity. Henry is an absolute amazing joy. He's the funniest kid I've ever met, you know, and he just continues to make me laugh and us laugh all the time. I mean, he could be a handful, of course, you know, I'm not, I don't want to paint like the rosiest of pictures. And some of that is due to him being a a young boy. And some of that is due to Down syndrome. He has some levels of ADHD. So there's kind of that factor into it too. But it's it's just the greatest thing to have him in our lives. You know, I always remember with my cousin, Brett, you just never knew what was going to happen. Like when my uncle died, Brett spilled water on himself. So he just started taking his clothes off. We're like, no, no, no. Like, but he lightened up the whole thing. <laughs> some of that, right? Yeah, but, but it was almost like he broke up the sadness. And it was like he did that where he'd do something random. And he just made you take life a lot lighter and a lot less serious. Yeah. Henry did um, during COVID here and he didn't do well with school, you know, like so many kids, but because, and it's more of like when he's home and trying to do online schooling, I mean, he's home and home is, you know, electronics or his iPad or some show he's watching or it's coloring or whatever else and reading and stuff. And so it's not school, you know, and that's a very hard, that was a very hard thing for him to understand, but I would take him to bed every night. You know, and it used to be my wife and I would, would kind of alternate, but when COVID hit, it just worked into our schedules better that I would take him to bed every night. And it's really kind of a, one of the joys of my life to do because we just hang out up there a little bit and we talk and, and he's just funny. But anyway, he goes, I think one night he didn't want me to, to take him and put him to bed. And um, he goes, dad, what happened? He goes, before COVID, it was mom, dad, mom, dad, mom, dad, mom, dad. And then COVID happened. And everything got complicated. Now it's just dad, 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 dad. <laughs> I go, everything got comp. Where do you get this? Like everything got complicated. I love that he gives you such good material for your comedies too. Oh, he does. He does. Well, we are already at the halfway point. I want to pause just a moment and thank our listeners. Thanks for listening to Little Detours with Regina Brett and to our guest, Rob Snow. I know you have many podcast choices and I'm grateful you chose to listen to mine. So your son, Charlie, is getting into comedy. I watched a little clip of him, which I thought was hysterical. He looks at the audience and says, you know, I'm too young to date. And he names a woman in the audience like, yeah, that goes for you, lady. I mean, he just has a (laughs) a bit of your presence of comedy. And I wonder, is that DNA or is that just kind of how you are around the house, you know, lighthearted? I think he saw me doing it. He's a funny kid for sure. That's gone. You know, he did that from the age, like literally at the ages of 10 to about 14. He hasn't really done it in a couple of years. Um, but I was, I always kind of looked at it as, 
you know, he got that down. He got public speaking down, not down, like he he hasn't mastered it, but he can do it in ways that almost no friends of his can do. You know, he, it's, he's not afraid to give, get up and give a speech. He, you know, ran for um, a couple offices in his classes in seventh and eighth grade and he won both. But I think because of his speech, his, his speech making skills. So I was really, I'm really proud that he had that kind of in his life, whether he gets back into it, we'll see, but he's, he's helped out a lot just in the, um, in the improv stuff that we've done. And you have three shows. We need a sign Minimize the Mountain, and how about just treat each other right? Tell me about We Need a Sign. What's that show about? Well, I'll kind of give you the trajectory. So that one started out a couple years. I finally, I had started doing this comedy again, after, you know, just before Henry was born, and I got a little bit better and a little bit better. And finally, a club, I wasn't really seeking this out. It was always just going to be a hobby because I, I wasn't quitting the day job. But a club in Columbus, a uh, funny bone down in Columbus, asked me to feature for them. They'd seen me perform two or three times and they said, can we feature it? When that's like a bigger deal, that's like, you're, you're the middle comic, right? You're the, it's like playing triple A ball, you know, and you're, you're not the major leagues, but you're, you're a pro. And I hadn't done that in my career. And so I did that six shows, four nights, and I get in my hotel room on the last night and I kind of just had this epiphany and it was like, or this realization was, was like, I'm not going to do this again. I, is my bucket list. I loved it. I thought I did great but I'm good. Like, I don't need to keep doing this. But that night I said, I'm, I'm really not done. I still have more to say. We had had Henry for two years at that time. And so I just started writing the show about raising a child with special needs and the obstacles, you know, commonalities we share and things like that with other parents. And I started performing that in 2011 and it kind of went around the country a little bit with it. And then a client actually had asked me to kind of make a more universal show for a, a seminar that they were doing. And so I created Minimize the Mountain, and I based that on three different experiences in my life where that mountain kind of fell in front of me. And it was, you know, losing losing my job, like in Chicago in the early days, then losing a best friend uh, at the age of 31, and then having Henry. And then it's these seven steps of kind of how I worked through that to go from, you know, minimizing the mountain to managing the hill. If we can get it down to a hill, it can be manageable. But most likely when when the mountain falls, it's not going away, uh, at least anytime soon. So we got to figure out how to manage our lives. Uh, And then the other one was, how about just treat each other right? Was just, that was something I wanted to do for more students and kids. And it revolved around bullying and, you know, really just how to treat each other. I used my own experiences growing up kind of as that class clown, like you mentioned, where, you know, you're a class clown, you're making people laugh, but you don't realize there's sometimes there's a, you know, there's somebody at the end of that, that, you know, at the expense of some of that. And I never realized that until I got back to a reunion one time. And I was told that I didn't make somebody's life very, uh, very good in high school. And it really affected me. So those are the three shows. In the last year or two, I've really been focusing on the charity and and then what we've done with the improvisation piece. So I, I really haven't performed those shows in about a year. About a year, I think, was the last time I did any of those shows. Well, before we talk about uh, Stand Up for Downs, your charity, you talk about this the mountain and these steps. Can you share a little bit of how you did that with Henry's birth, how you kind of went through that process? Yeah, I'd love to. The, and... Uh, and honestly, performing these shows, or minimize the mountain, is one of my favorite things in the world to do, because I do think it, it, I do think it resonates with people in a lot of ways. 
um, and it is very relative. So with Henry, you know, the first step I, I always look to is is like the why. It has to be the why. Why do you want to get off your knees? You know, you know why why are you doing this? And you get you have to really think like who that's for. Is it for you? You know, a lot of people say I'm doing this for me, which you know is is fine. I I'm not my best. You know, I'm not my best measurement on that. I'm not my best motivation. I've been through too many diets and things like that. That, you know, um, I'm doing this for me. It doesn't always work for me. So I looked around. I looked at Henry. I looked at my son. Uh, I looked at Char. I mean, I looked at Charlie. I looked at Henry. I looked at my wife, who was struggling with it at the time. And I said, I can't be the father I need to be if I'm on my knees. So that became my why. And when you have your why, everything else is easier. You can do the other steps without your why, but they're not as easy. Because your why is the thing that burns inside of you, that motivates you, you know, to no end, hopefully. And, you know, I won't give you all the steps, but I talked about the one finding the positive, you know, educating yourself thoroughly, you know, because on the Internet these days, I don't know if you know this, but some of the things on the Internet aren't always true. So you have to dig and dig. Keep digging, you know, and I look, you you went through this yourself and I, I look at cancer diagnoses and stuff. You know, keep digging until you really get to the truth of things. But the big one, I think, is asking for and accepting help, which is impossible. It's so hard. We're also good at giving help. You know, Regina, everything you do, I bet you're not great at asking for and accepting help. Or if you are, you've learned it. Because it's right, we don't, we think we're a burden to somebody. And there's two things about this that I always say. And one is, you know, first of all, we're taught all of our lives. Practice makes perfect and, you know, all of this. And and then the hardest thing in your life, something you've never done in your life, by the way, all of a sudden falls on you. And somebody says, how can I help? And you go, I got this. And it's like, what do you have? You've never done this. You've not practiced it. You're not good at it. Where do you get off? Where is your arrogance to think you can do this on your own? And it's ridiculous. And the second thing is every time you tell somebody no or you don't accept help, go back to your why and tell your whys. You know, how committed are you to, in my case, my sons and my wife, and I'm not going to take somebody's help to help them? You know, so it's this, it's, I think that's the biggest thing I really do. And it's all short, short of acceptance, which is the final step. But, you know, that's, that's the biggest right there. So that, that was kind of the process we went through with Henry. And that was a tough one, you know, when I finally started to ask for and accept help, you know, even if it was just the meal trains that people put together for us during that time, it was, you know, a lot of therapies came, came along. And at the time, you know, it was tough to afford a lot of these things. And of course, we, mm. we wanted the best for our son. So, you know, I went to the bank of mom and dad and, you know, they were helpful in that, you know, regard. So, you know, my boss, like, you know, I wanted another week off of work and I had to add, he was like, Rob, take it. And the other thing is people don't ever, nobody's ever burdened, by the way, when you ask him for help in these tough times. And he, you know what I mean? It's an honor, right? We're never, we're never like, Ugh, like your best friend comes up to you and asks for help. You're not like, I guess. No, you're like, of course, I'm honored. Thank you for asking me, you know? That's so important, Rob, to be able to ask yeah. for help and receive it. Like you said, it's so easy to be the giver, but it's really hard to ask and receive because yeah. We think we're not worthy or that we're a burden, but it's it's harder to be the receiver. Yeah. I think the power shift it is a different experience. Yeah. Now you created a charity, Stand Up for Downs. So you not just receive help, but you created a way to be help for others. 
Yeah, that's that's one of the steps too, because I talk about helping others as part of this, these steps because it one it brings you so much, you know. But I look at it in terms of you know it's harder to help because it's really therapeutic because when you're helping others in this time, like anybody can anybody would reach out their hand, you know, from like you know, terra firma, you know, to help somebody that's drowning, you know, you're on solid ground, you're going to, it's easy to reach out your hand to help somebody. But what if you were drowning too? You know, that's where I look at it. Like you're in this dark time, you're in a tough time, but still reaching out. You look at sponsors for like, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous. And what I've learned about sponsors is, you know, yes, they become sponsors to, to help others and they want to impart what they've learned, but they also do it for themselves because, and it's a little bit selfish, which in this case is not, a terrible thing. It's kind of the oxygen mask theory on a plane, you know, put it on yourself so you can help others. But sponsors do it because it it keeps them on track as well. And so I, I look at it like that. So helping others, you know, stand up for downs was something that, you know, and when you make it relative to your mountain per se, it's even more helpful. So our mountain was down syndrome. And I said, well, what do we know? And what can we do to be a part of this world? And helping others. And I said, I know comedy and I had produced comedy events and things. And so we started just doing that. We just produced comedy events and we raised, you know, I think in five years we had raised over four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars and we just kicked all that, you know, as much as we could outside of expenses, but back out to charity, you know, out to different Down syndrome organization, disability organizations that we felt were really, really important. And that was really great for those five years. And then, you know, putting on events is like, you know, after four or five years is pretty draining, you know, always going back to the well and things like that. So I was up at a friend's house in Detroit and I think too late in 2017 and she was pregnant with triplets at the time. And I said, you know, if you weren't doing this, what would you be doing? And she had performed and things like that before. And she said, it was always my dream to teach improvisation to people with special needs and she had taught special needs before too but I said well why is that and she said oh my god imagine the possibilities and I just like you know and I just we talked about it a little bit more and then I drove the three hours home from Detroit I didn't I didn't turn on the radio once you know I just had this you know the music in my mind just like oh my god we could how did I not think of this and of course, you know, I told her I was stealing her idea, which she <laughs> gladly gave me. So I give her a lot of credit. But, but you know, I thought if we can teach these skills, you know, problem solving and quick thinking and creative thinking and even voice projection and uh, eye contact, focus, listening, teamwork, all these skills that could greatly increase social workplace lifetime opportunities for people with special needs. And it just like blew up in my head. And uh, we started teaching the first classes at a place called Gigi's Playhouse and, uh, in Cleveland. We just did it once a month and we had kind of immediate success with it, like uh, results. I was, uh, well, what, when it really came, I, I, we had a young man in the class who had both Down syndrome and autism and he could say a few words, but he was very amicable, but he really wouldn't participate a whole lot. And then one day I got a call from the person who runs this playhouse and she was at the parents' house of this young man, Tony. And she said, I can't believe I was just at this house. And what Tony did, Tony came to the door, he hugged me, he had his Stand Up for Downs shirt on, that's our charity, Stand Up for Downs. Uh, he had his Stand Up for Downs shirt on, he had his improv certificate, and he was, he was like, Tony wants to be an actor, Tony wants to act, Tony, go downtown Cleveland, act, like all these words all of a sudden. 
And his parents came to the door and she goes, what happened with Tony? And they go, it's that class. He can't stop. Like, and I just, I'm in an airport listening to this story, just bawling in a corner. So then we took it to weekly classes and we cast, we auditioned over 25 individuals with Down syndrome here in Cleveland. We cast 10 of them, which was the hardest thing in the world to do, to pick just 10 of them. And, uh, and then we trained them for a year and a half, once a week. And then we put on this really big show at Weathervane Theater in Akron for two nights, it was sold out. And then it just blew up, you know, and now we still have the, that group. They're our most advanced level. Prior to COVID, we were booked to perform around the country. We would do workshops around the country. I created this, you know, an entire 40 class agenda, two different levels and things like that. And it just blew up prior to COVID. And we were going to, you know, I was thinking about quitting the day job over this and all that. Then COVID happened and we were like, what are we going to do? And I, myself and my, my, my partner who, who was with us since auditions, her name's Maggie Bassezi. I said, you know, what should we do? And I started to create some Zoom. You know, this Zoom thing was just starting, right? People sure. were just hearing about it. So I created five Zoom classes where I took some of the games and said, I think we can do some of these online. And those five ended quickly and they were like, we want five more. So then before we knew, you know, fast forward to today, we're doing 30 Zoom classes a week. Oh my goodness. Down syndrome associations, disability organizations all over the country. There's like over 400, you know, different participants around the country that are getting the benefit of this. And Regina, the reviews of this, and I don't even teach him anymore, so I'm not going to take the credit. I started teaching him, and then I passed it on to Maggie, and and then her best friend, Jenna, came aboard, and we trained her and certified her. So these two now teach 30 of these classes each week, and it's just, it's incredible. Like, the parents, one, connection, two, it's a reprieve from their daily lives during COVID, and three, they're learning so many of those skills I had just mentioned, you know, so it's really been incredible. That is beautiful. So tell us the yeah. website where we can find out more about the Improvineers. What's your website? Standupfordowns.org is, is the best way to find out about everything we're doing. And then you can kind of see a bunch of fun videos on there that, you know, we've had done by us over the years and some great articles and things, but a lot of the reviews, go to the reviews page and just read what the parents are saying. Cause it's really kind of inspiring. It sounds beautiful. And I'll have links to that on my website, reginabrett.com. Well, Rob, we are out of time. My biggest takeaway today is when there's that mountain in front of you, you can gradually turn it into a hill. And maybe the yeah. hill is there just to be part of the, the scenic view of your life. You know? That's right. All right. Um, I want to have you close your answer to this question. What is the best thing you do for yourself every day to create a life you love out of the life you have? Wow. You know, <laughs> you prepped a little bit with some of these questions and I got to this one and I was, I was like, you know, and there was another one about routines and I just heard, I wish I had better routines in my life. I wish I had that thing where like, I, I you know, meditation or things like that. And I've tried different things in my life. You know, I think the best thing that I do, but you know what I do? I, I, I pray every night, you know, I'm, I'm more spiritual than religious, but I pray every night and uh, you know, and I just, it's just a conversation with God. And, and sometimes it's even with, you know, people who've passed, you know, over the years that I've been close to. And, and I just, we just talk and I just kind of work things out, you know, in that talk. I mean, with, with so many of the things that have happened in my life, I do think somebody's up there listening and um, helping where they can. So I think that's one of the routines that I do 
you know, kind of on a daily basis. And I'm guessing they're laughing a bit too. <laughs> I think so. I'd like to think so. <laughs> All right, Rob, thanks so, so much for joining me today. You got it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Little Detours with Regina Brett. If you want to know more about today's guest and topic, head to my podcast page at reginabrett.com. There you can also subscribe to my email newsletter so you never miss an opportunity to be inspired. For more episodes, you can subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. While you're there, please rate and review my show so we can reach and inspire even more people. Thanks for joining us today. Now go make something possible.